My name is Shana Jane, a certified sobriety health and wellness coach with 14 years of experience in the treatment industry and also my own history with substance abuse. As the founder and CEO of Controlled Chaos, I've made it my mission to provide a supportive community for those facing alcoholism and addiction. This podcast is a real, no-nonsense exploration of life and sobriety. No sugarcoating, just real, honest conversations. Life after addiction can be a crazy, wild ride. And here at Control Cares, we're here to tackle it head on. From navigating relationships to finding purpose, we're your lifeline in chaos. Let's dive into the real challenges of sobriety and carve out our path together. I love y'all mucho. Let's go. Welcome to Controlled Chaos. I'm Shayna, your host. And you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Benjamin Lerner, and I'm a person in long-term recovery who's dedicated my life to making content that shines light on addiction, recovery, and the steps we can take for a better life. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. So I actually started following you on Instagram a while ago, and I listen to a lot of your stuff, and I love how outspoken you are about addiction and how you know, how addiction has affected you or how you're feeling about things that are going on in the world. I think it's really awesome. So thank you for that. Thank you for being open to it. Yeah, I try to speak openly about my own experience and also things that I see going on on a larger scale with the epidemic and different steps that can be taken because it's a conversation that needs to be had. Definitely is. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal story with addiction? Yeah, I think I'll do... uh, when I was in middle school and high school, being the millennial that I am, we had a little application called Spark Notes, which would boil everything down. And uh, so I'll give you the Spark Notes version. Growing up, I was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, and uh, that manifests in a lot of different ways. But for me, the best way I can describe it in a shorthand version is sensory overload. Basically, whenever I would have a conversation with someone or whenever there'd be a loud noise or there was a lot of visual or auditory or tactile stimuli, it would make me want to hide because my senses were so overpowering that I didn't want to be present. And I've never enjoyed or been really capable of looking people in the eye without consciously reminding myself to do that because social contact is uncomfortable for me. And that coupled with a little bit of instability at home, everybody's life is different. Everybody goes through some form of trauma. But when my parents got divorced and my mom, who's also now in recovery, started drinking a lot, Uh, there was a lot of instability at home and that coupled with my mental instability, I sought out a chemical solution and I'd had little sips of alcohol growing up, like at a new year's party or something out of curiosity. But I considered the first drink that I ever took to be in like seventh or eighth grade. I don't forget the specific year, but I'll never forget the day because it was this disgusting, almost moldy cobweb six pack that my friend's parents had forgotten about. And he drank one of them and I drank five. And for the first time in my life, I remember feeling like that voice telling me I wasn't good enough, that kind of grating static of mental energy that made it impossible for me to cope with life was gone, but it came at a price. And the price was that instead of working on myself within myself and working through therapy or whatever it was for a sustainable solution that was not tied to a chemical, I turned to an external solution for an internal problem. And it started out pretty suburban. It started out you know, parties. I grew up in Washington, D.C., went to private school. So it was like picturesque parties and a couple of kids would get too drunk, me included, but cops had busted up. But, you know, we 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 never got into too much trouble. But within 10 years, every single line I thought I wouldn't cross DUIs, car crashes escalating from, you know, alcohol and cannabis to cocaine, MDMA, but still lines I thought I wouldn't cross pharmaceuticals. And then eventually, you know, this scared, shy, 
autism spectrum kid was on the streets of the Tenderloin in San Francisco after one thing led to another, shooting dope, smoking crack, trying to steal upon everything that I had, track marks up inside my arms, nothing but fear, hate, and anger inside my heart. Been in and out of rehab many times, and um, I didn't actually want to get help. It wasn't when, you know, I had seizures, had to be shot up with Ativan at the hospital and withdrawal. It wasn't when my friends started dying, none of that. It was when the drugs stopped working for me. They got me physically high, but they didn't get me chemically or emotionally high. And that grating mental static came back. And that's when I realized that I had three options. I could throw it all away and try to intentionally end it. I could try to keep using, thinking that it would get better delusionally. Or I could actually go to treatment and work a program of recovery for myself. And I chose to do that, not for any moral higher ground, like sky opening moment, but because I knew it would be harder for me to keep running from my pain than to run towards it and accept that there was a lot of work for me to do. So that happened in a June 13th, 2016 was the last day I ever used. And I've been clean and sober ever since. Wow. I love that. And you know, it's funny because a lot of times when you ask people about their recovery or their past, you know, use history, things like that, a lot of people have, including me for years and years, have no idea where or why what it came from. So I find it super cool that you like could pinpoint like, this is what was bothering me. This is why I did it. And this is what it did for me, right? It was a solution. For me, it took me a really long time to understand, like, what the point of it was. Because I was super miserable all the time. I was sick, throwing up, um, not able to take care of my kids, myself, not showering, not doing anything I was supposed to do. But I, you know, kept doing it because I was addicted. But I didn't really understand what started it in the first place. And I think what ended up starting it for me was the fact that I was so awkward and shy. And, you know, when I started drinking, it was like all of that kind of went away. Right. But then when I started getting sick all the time from it, it didn't go away because I was anxious that I was going to like have a seizure because I didn't have enough or I was going to, you know, it brought all that anxiousness back and kind of like you, it's like, what, what am I doing this for? Like, it's no longer working, right? So I find that really cool that you kind of were able to pinpoint what it was that kind of was the reason that started it in the first place. Because I think so many people really aren't sure and kind of being able to open up and be like, this is how I felt inside of me is, is like super cool. So you went to rehab and that that's where you got sober. Yeah, I went to uh, the retreat in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which was a, a 28 to 31 day program. They didn't tell you how many days they gave you because they didn't want you calling up your people on the outside and kind of plotting a relapse. So I stayed for 31 days and uh, that was a gift. Not everybody gets that. And uh, a lot of people who went there who were there on state insurance or through criminal diversion programs, they would literally be crying. Because they would be, after they detoxed, discharged, and they had no place to go. And that's, you know, it's a sad fact. That's how insurance companies work. And, you know, it's a blessing that they even got there, got to go there to detox. But I was very fortunate that, you know, my family made it very clear to me that they knew the full extent of my addiction. And I tried to conceal it from them. They knew that I was using needles and that I was an opioid addict, but they thought I was like going on maintenance medications and actually trying to get sober. But they, they cleaned out my closet quite literally when I was there. And they realized that that was just not the case. They found all the paraphernalia, all the empty bags. And they're like, this is, this is out of control. So 
I landed at a recovery house and I went to outpatient treatment for a year and a half after that. And then I was subsequently able to get my life back in ways that I never thought possible. It wasn't just getting sober. It was finding a purpose through working. And it wasn't the type of work that I wanted to do. I started working in the service industry and it was incredibly menial and demanding labor work, busting tables, high volume service. And then funnily enough, bartending when I was two years sober. And a lot of people say, oh, that must have been so triggering. And I was like, well, the alcohol was triggering. Yes. But the more triggering thing was that I was balancing my recovery program and trying to get rid of my resentments and my anxieties and fears while being forced to serve a bunch of anxious and angry, resentful, functional alcoholics. I mean, I don't want to judge them, but from their shape, when someone's shaking at the bar, even if they're in a fancy business suit or something like that, like you, you see yourself in that in your past. So it actually helped me work through it. And it gave me new levels of awareness about the way I was acting. That was very crucial. But yeah, I, I did go to rehab and I did outpatient rehab and then once weekly for a year and a half. And um, I don't get specific in terms of like the fellowship that works for me. You can probably listen to my language and know what time it is. But the rooms and recovery fellowships also pr played a prominent part in it. And um definitely gave me the backbone of the support that I needed in the beginning. Yeah, I love that. I myself, I actually do a few different types of recovery altogether because I feel like I took a little bit from each of the things that I did. I actually went to a recovery center in like 2011 that was based around a lot of like religious stuff. And I loved a lot of the God part of it. Didn't love a lot of the rules. <laughs> I did some AA stuff. I did some medication. So I kind of took a little bit of everything and those are the tools that work for me. And that's what I stick with. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I support all paths of recovery. Like yeah. just because mine is more traditional, like fellowship, chemically abstinent based. If someone's on MAT, if they're doing spiritual based recovery therapy, if they don't do the whole fellowship thing, even people who use like plant medicine in their recovery, like that's cool for me because everybody's different. Recovery is not a monolith. It looks different mm -hmm. on everybody. You just got to find what works for you. And oftentimes, like you say, uh, a good friend of mine, also a recovery content creator, Quinn Lapier, he mm -hmm. says, I have a recovery tool belt like Batman, that little utility belt with like all of those different things where I draw in different stuff. So that's cool that you got that going on, too. No, that's actually a perfect analogy, because that is that is what my life is like. I try. I actually worked in treatment for a 12 step program. I was, you know, would always say I'm a 12 stepper, I'm a 12 stepper. And I couldn't get myself to stay sober. And I was full of shit. I just kept lying so that I could keep my job. And eventually, I just couldn't keep up with it all. And then when I moved back home, I ended up getting on the Vivitrol shot. And that was like the final kind of nail in my recovery. So it just ended up that I had really tried everything else. And I kept relapsing. And then when I tried medication, it was like, okay, that was the thing that took the craving away for me, right? And I needed that to go away in order to be able to like move on, basically. <laughs> move yeah, on for a minute from just thinking about it 24-7. Absolutely. And you know, I think that if you know Suboxone, Methadone, Vivitrol works, mm -hmm. then that's that's fantastic. I did Vivitrol for three months after I got out of treatment. And the only reason I didn't do it for longer was because I had a bad skin reaction to it, uh, the whole subcutaneous thing. But I am a firm supporter of Vivitrol and all those measures because it can be a real 
key in the toolbox that helps people move forward and have that safety net that lets them know. Like, you know, when I was in my first couple of months on Vivitrol, it literally saved my life uh, because I found a bag of dope in my car uh, when I was two months sober. And it was just like it was there staring at me, laughing at me. I was cleaning out my mom's car, trying to, like, you know, make sure that if she got pulled over because I used her car because I didn't have my own, that nothing would be found. And I did wasn't expecting to find anything. Sure enough. And uh, I just gotten the shot, the Vivitrol shot the day before. And I don't know. I like to think that if I hadn't been on Vivitrol, I wouldn't have been tempted. But I think that knowing that my receptors were occupied then at that critical point when I was still had like one foot in the life, even though I was trying to stay sober, was a very powerful thing. So I think Vivitrol can be absolutely life-saving. Yeah. And I definitely agree with that. I think my cravings were so hard that like, as soon as it would come in my head, I feel like, which isn't the case, but I felt like I was drinking before I even had a chance to like, think it through, right? Like there, people would say like, play the tape or, you know, all that stuff. And I'm like, what tape? Like, who has that? I'm already at the store. <laughs> it's already happened, right? So I think it gave me like a pause and I don't even, to be honest, I never even researched it or anything before I went on it. I had worked in treatment forever and I had been to treatment quite a few times. So when I moved home to my like rinky dink town and I went to go see my doctor, like, I don't even know why I'm here, but like last resort, do you have any ideas? Cause like, I can't stop. Right. And she was like, well, have you tried this? And I was like, no. And she put me on it. And that was, that was that I've been sober for like close to three years now. So I don't know. I think that, you know, there's a reason why people sometimes caution against certain kinds of meds and maybe, you know, they might not be the best option for everybody. For me, it definitely worked and nothing else was working. So I think exactly like you said, it's kind of like not one shoe fits all right. You got to what works for you. One shoe's not going to fit. And I think that that approach actually also relates to some of the advocacy work that I do in terms of the epidemic. People think that there's only one path to treatment or recovery on a personal level. And I think sometimes that approach kind of moves forward into how people see how we should combat the epidemic of addiction and alcoholism on a larger scale. A lot of people say just enforcement in regards to the fentanyl crisis. A lot of people say, oh, just treatment, or we only have to focus on harm reduction. We only have to focus on like, you know, criminal reform, justice reform. And, and my whole thing is, it's that kind of perspective of my way is the only way and I'm not open to trying different things. And more than that, seeing how those different things can be tied together and inform each other. I think spiritual recovery can inform how people implement taking medicine and recovery that helps them. I think that, you know, having a fellowship can influence different aspects of your recovery, how you approach therapy. And it's the same thing in terms of fighting the epidemic. I have sat at the table and gone to multiple events with people who are very enforcement minded and who are very harm reduction minded. And a lot of them, sadly, the enforcement side, people say, oh, well, we need to strengthen this and enough of this treatment harm reduction that hasn't worked. And on the other side, we only need to do this enough of that. It's, it's not part of it. But the most productive conversations that I have with people, both on a personal scale and recovery and in terms of people talking about actual salient solutions to address this crisis on a macro level is when you're willing to listen to other people's perspectives and experience. You can see not just how there is validity and potential points of crossover, but how it doesn't all have to be 
so one-sided and unilateral and linear there's there's a recovery in itself is such a complex personal thing that if that's expanded to the recovery and ultimately the survival of millions of people and the change of the lives perspectives of millions of people it it has to be even more complex and multifaceted and people have to be open to discussing multiple paths just like people have to be in their own lives it's funny that you bring that up because I actually I work at a nursing home as my you know other job. We were just talking about somebody was like playing the news or whatever, and they were talking about politics. So everybody's like, oh, my God, shut it off before everybody argues. Right. And, you know, the only thing that we kind of said at that point was like, you know, there is like such a strong opinion on each side, even with like the Black Lives Matter and this other stuff. Right. I'm half black and half white. And I like see a little of both sides right and even in politics it's like this way or this way and i'm like can we just build a new a new point of view a a new middle like everybody gets a vote like hey this is harmful this is hurtful on this side but it shouldn't go all the way to over here right (laughs) so i feel the same way about addiction and alcoholism it's like there is a progression and a spectrum of alcoholism and addiction So there is no way there can be one solution to it. There's just no way. Absolutely. And and we live in a very polarized world today. And I think it goes beyond actual policy and steps that people think should be taken and takes on a different cultural mentality that intersects with a lot of political elements and a lot of cultural elements that really have nothing to do with the policies, but more the sex of society that people attribute them to. And what I say to people, it doesn't matter if you're in a red or a blue state, nobody wants to wear all black to their loved one's funeral. And it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. The goal is not horizontal. It's we want to be six feet up and not six feet under. And so if you're going to look at an effective change in your life, or you're going to look at an effective change that can help millions of people and not just the people struggling with addiction, but their families. You have to be willing to look past the facade of politics and you have to be willing to look at the actual steps that a person takes to implement them. Just like, you know, I'll be honest, this has nothing to do with politics, but I was against the idea of one, getting sober, or two, ever going to a group like the ones I go to today that have greatly helped me. Because just like someone who was polarized and kind of locked in their own mind, that was not the part of culture that I wanted to be aligned with. I thought that sober people were all boring. I thought that they were all dogmatic. I thought that they were all trying to get me to live a certain way. And some people were like that, but some people that I used with were like that too. It's not about, you know, this specific sect of people is all this. And I think that in order to get sober, I had to be willing to listen to people who there's a line in a specific fellowship, but like people who normally would not associate due to cultural differences, due to the fact that, you know, some of them are doctors or or Wall Street bankers and some of them are bricklayers or work in the service industry. And um, yeah, you just got to stay open. You got to stay open because it makes your life better in every sense. And that's true on every like on every front, because honestly, I was willing to overlook a lot of character defects when I was using because I wanted alcohol and I didn't have any money or I wanted, you know, whatever. I was able to overlook a lot of things because it it assisted me in what I wanted. 
But when it came to getting sober or like, say, like going to church or like things like that, I'm like, I don't really like him or I don't like how they did this. And I don't know if I want to be a part of that. Like, what? <laughs> no, you can definitely overlook, you know, things and see what it is that you can come together on. And I think that that's like what we're missing in a lot of our country, period, you know, is like there is more than one answer to some things and both people's points of view can be taken into consideration and maybe found finding like a common ground, right? Like what, what can we do? So everybody's not passing away. You know, I worked in a treatment center for about 15 years and it was a very high end treatment center. And the people that came there weren't just, you know, what, reg what people think of regular drug addicts or regular alcoholics, people who have nothing and, you know, do nothing in society. That's what the stereotype is, right? No, these were like governor's children. These were some famous people. Like, it doesn't discriminate. So it can happen to you. It can happen to your children, right? It can happen to little kids that go to school and take the wrong pill, Right. Like, I think it's something that we have to stop thinking like this is just for other people and they should just get in trouble or, you know, whatever the opinion is. And like, how can we come together and fix it? Absolutely. A lot of people I've seen it and it's sad who don't support the use of Narcan and other overdose prevention measures. It all changes when their child or their spouse or their brother or sister is revived, because when it gets that visceral. When it gets that real, it oh, becomes personal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's definitely a thing. And I think that, you know, even as far as like Narcan, right, just something that saves someone's life. I would always hear, well, why can why can you get that for free and you can't get diabetes medication? You should, you know, they should be able to just be left because that was their choice. And diabetes is not their choice. And again, it's like another comparison and another this is this way and this is that way. Well, why should you not be able to afford your diabetic medication? You should be able to. You should also be able to have another chance if you overdosed, right? Like those things aren't mutually exclusive, right? <laughs> but not they're compared all. all the time. Yeah. And that's another hole in the system, which is, you know, healthcare. And, you know, you can talk about different layers of socialized healthcare, how insurance could be used better in terms of coverage. And that's a completely different conversation. But the one thing I will say about Narcan is it's different in every district. Sometimes people are not charged uh, by if a cop revives them with Narcan or something like that. But if an EMT revives someone with Narcan, they're getting a bill for several thousand dollars. Oh, for sure. That's just, and, and people don't know that. They say it's free. Well, some districts, if a policeman administers Narcan, they, they don't send a bill. But if someone is revived by an EMT, that's money. It's it's there. And it's it's interesting to hear people's perspectives on that. Certainly, I've heard the diabetes argument for a long time with the insulin. I've heard a lot of things. But what I would say to that is a lot of people say, oh, addiction's a disease. Oh, addiction's a choice. And my thinking on that has multiple levels. As someone with lived experience, everybody has different takes on it. But my real thing about it is whether or not you choose to view addiction as a disease or a choice or a choice that leads to a disease or a progressive uh, sick behavioral pattern. I think that addiction is the only call it a disease, call it a mental health issue where let's say someone is revived by Narcan and they go on to be sober and clean 
for the rest of their life. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does, or that's the first step towards it. That person, if they make part of their life and part of their recovery helping other people get sober, saving that person can potentially save the lives of dozens of people who can then go on to do the same and proliferate it that way. So when people talk about the cost-benefit analysis of administering Narcan on a large scale, oh, we're Narcanning all these people and it's only working for, you know, 5% of them. Right. Well, that 5% can turn into, you know, 25 or 30% just by virtue of them being out. And of course, the numbers aren't going to be specific, but I've heard stories of people, you know, being Narcan seven times, sometimes in the same month, but then they get it and then they get sober. And then not only do they get sober and improve the, the lives of them and their family members and their community, but they help other people do it too. And you can't put a price on that. There's no study that's going to show uh, the long-term efficacy of that. But I think that every single person who is saved with Narcan has the potential not only to save their own life and recover, but other people. And that's why regardless of whether people choose to call it a disease, a behavioral issue, anything, do you want to save lives or not? I really like that perspective. I really like the, the truth is, is that most people who have suffered from addiction or alcoholism, be it a choice or whatever you want to believe it is, most of us who get sober go on to help other people. So like, and I know there's statistics on that. So I think, and I believe, you know, one day some of these people might help your child or your grandchild or the chances of you not knowing or having somebody in your family who ever struggles with addiction or alcoholism is so low. It's going to touch you in some way at some point. It's very low. And most of the time you don't know until it really hits that level. So is there anything that you like want to actually talk to the people about today? Is there anything that you want to make sure that you get out there? I'm going to say something that I wish and I, and I do this in a lot of my content and a lot of my lives. So to anybody who like has heard my stuff, this might be repetitive, but I think it bears repeating. If you want to go on my content and see my story, it's there. I post two reels a day. I do lives where I go deeper in it. I write, I blah, blah, blah. I could use this as a shameless plug, but it's out there. Benjamin Lerner. Facebook, IG, whatever. My stuff is there. But one message that I always like to tell people, because I get hundreds of messages across platforms from people who need help and they don't have insurance, they don't have a treatment center. And a lot of them, they're not sure how to get sober. But more than that, they carry a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And they say, I have no idea how I'm going to sometimes just get my kids back get off my, you know, parole that's sending me back to jail every time I relapse, like like all these different things. But at the base of all of those situational things, there's an immense feeling of guilt and shame that they don't deserve to get sober. And I think that there's a big misunderstanding that sobriety is punishment. I think that, you know, some programs through legal systems, through court diversion, drug court programs are great because some people, they need that instruction. And, you know, we could talk about the justice system's benefits versus negatives. A lot is good for some people, not for others. But the point is, when you contextualize recovery as punishment, like you get a DUI, you got to go to fellowship meetings and take this class. You've caught with you got to go to jail or at the very least court ordered rehab. Sobriety is seen as punishment. And people think they deserve to get sober as punishment because they're bad people. No, 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 no. I'll speak for myself here, but I will say this. You don't deserve to get sober because you're a bad person who needs to be punished. You deserve to get sober because you're a good person who has been turning to a flawed temporary solution for an internal problem. And you deserve to be free. You deserve to be 
be happy and you deserve to have the life that the people have told you you can't have because of their stigma or you believe you can't have. Your future sober self is cheering you on. And if you choose to recover, you'll get to meet him and you can have that life that is better than anything you believe trapped in active addiction, bigger than the bottle, bigger than the bag. And it's waiting for you. So go ahead and meet your sober self. Come on. It's out there. You deserve it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think beyond just it being a punishment, a lot of times, like, or seen as a punishment, I think the process of getting sober, like the detoxing, like the going through missing it, the going through maybe having some depression and anxiety and not knowing how to fix it yet or how to handle it. I think that whole process is so painful and so tedious and it does feel like punishment and then when you keep relapsing and keep going through that same first part of sobriety again it does feel like punishment but I'll definitely say like once I not that the whole first year sucked (laughs) but once I got past that first year like there's nothing that compares to my life now like nothing the happiness even like the contentness, right? Like I used to worry about everything, be so insecure about everything. And now I really know, like, I'm a good person. I'm really a fun person to be around. Like I am like an asset to people around me, to my friends. I have like a really happy, healthy life. And I think that when you get stuck in that original first part of like, okay, I'm going to try to quit and you got to go through the detox and you got to go through the, and then you relapse or something else happens. You keep experiencing that same shitty part. And that's what you think sobriety is. And that's not it at all. And it's hard to like, oh yeah, just wait a year. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm definitely saying like, I'm surprised every day how much better my life continues to get. Yeah. It's a process. And Someone told me something when I welcomed my first kid and they said, savor every moment, even the ones where you're tired, even the ones where you're ungrateful, because you're going to realize that laid the foundation for your whole journey of parenthood and really in the rest of your life. And I wish someone had told me that in early recovery. Those days where you get those hard lessons, where for me, it was like no money in my pocket, couldn't even take the bus walking through the rain to the outpatient treatment center where I missed the train that I had my like, you know, little card for and just that rain metaphorically and literally that I had to trudge through. But today I look back and I see, yeah, it sucked. But the resiliency that it taught me paved the way for a life that when I was intentionally, like I love what you said, punishing myself, like going through that cycle again and again, the pain that I went through was to no end. But in recovery, that first call a year, six months, it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. That formative period. I'm not going to say I'm grateful for the hardest days during that period, but I am grateful for the lessons it taught me because those are priceless and that's something a bottle or a bag never did. Right. And I also think that it's something that just like the rest of our journeys that we're able to, because we went through it, we're able to speak to it and like, hey, I know what you're going through and I understand that, but there is an end to it. There really is. And I think that's one thing that I thought in my addiction too is like, I couldn't picture being sober because I thought that that felt bad. Like every time I was sober, I felt so bad that I couldn't picture being sober. I also couldn't picture living like I was living anymore. Like I didn't want to do either, really. (laughs) Like I was like, could somebody give me a different option, please? Besides like suicide, right? Because that's what you, that's what you think of is like, why am I here if this is how life feels, you know? 
But I think that it's really important that people know, like, kind of exactly what you said is like, there is a future self that feels way different and does way different. And you just don't know it yet. It's out there and you deserve to get it. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So you said you're a writer. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it's my day gig. I uh, write for tourist magazines and I also do a weekly recovery column. Okay, what's your recovery column called? It's called Clean. And uh, 600-word essays that are published in this uh, paper called the Vermont News Guide. It's like a local little thing in southern Vermont where I live. And, uh, yeah, it's just stories about challenges I encountered in recovery and what helped me get through them. That's amazing. So you're, like, local famous. (laughs) Okay, I'll be indulgent for a day. Yeah, people, the cool thing about it is call it famous or just call it people being open to it. Like, people who don't even struggle with recovery, some of whom don't even have loved ones who do. We'll come up and they'll say, hey, you're the dude from the column, right? And I say, yeah. They just, and they say, well, I just want you to know. And this is even more, I don't want to say it's more powerful. But when people who have never struggled with addiction say that thing you said about acceptance or that thing about dealing with grief, like it's not just for people who have struggled with addiction. That really makes me incredibly happy when people tell me that because it shows that there are paths for people who have never struggled with addiction to connect with people who have through our shared struggles in different ways. I agree with that. And I actually, I would tell my mom all the time, like I wish sometimes that people who weren't in recovery went through like, even like the 12 steps or things like that, because listen, it's for your everyday life, right? It's like taught me personally how to be a better person, right? Like I was very, very resentful about everything and blamed other people for a lot of things. And I think that learning differently around that helped me, right? Like it helps me see things differently and it makes me feel better. So I think it's something that, you know, can help everyone, honestly. I think so too. And I think that families can grow through watching someone recover and that when someone recovers, it's not just for them, it's their family, it's the whole community. And it helps people see that whatever behavioral patterns they have in their lives, be it tied to substance or mental health or not, it is possible to move past them and learn from them and have other people learn from them too, because it's not always tied to a substance. Sometimes it's tied to a cyclical behavior in terms of romantic partnerships or in terms of how we deal with trauma, how we deal with daily stress. And not everyone is tied to alcohol or other substances, but I think everybody can learn by uh, finding internal solutions for external problems. Very true. All right. Last question. Future. What do you see you doing in the future? What does it look like? What's your dream? I don't know, life, career, all that. I hate to be this corny, but you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of doing what I like to do. I, uh, I mean, obviously it would be cool. I want to write a tell all autobiography, like, you know, really take some time. I want to keep making music about recovery and content about recovery and growing the platforms. And yeah, but I think that it happens one day at a time, just like recovery. And the reason why I really like social media, other than the incredible community of people who are sharing their stories, is because the algorithm, you can say a lot of things about the algorithms, a lot of the whole essays about it. But if you don't make content every day in some form, just like if you don't work on your recovery every day, life will pass you over. The algorithm will pass you over if you don't. So what I do every day and what I'm going to keep doing regardless of where it goes is I'm going to show up. I'm going to speak out. I'm going to do my best to tell my story. And 
What I always like to say is when I was in active addiction, I made music and I, you know, wrote and all that in active addiction too. And the only thing I cared about was how many views on YouTube does this have? How many followers do I have? How much money am I being paid for a show? And now it's like, you know, a video will get like, you know, a million views on Facebook or like IG or whatever. And I'll just be like, yeah, that's cool. But what I'll never know from that and what I would say to any content creator is you can have a video with a million views and it doesn't help anybody. And you can have a video with 200 views or a post and it helps 10 people and you're never going to know. So as much as I would love to make this my full-time job and like just make content, write about addiction and recovery all day, I kind of like the place where I'm at where it's a side gig that, yeah, I've monetized on some platforms, but I have my grounding day job. I got my family. I got my ability to speak on it. And it's one day and one post at a time. So if the universe intends me to make this like my full-time gig, that's beautiful. But regardless of the view count, the monetization, the whatever, like I'm going to keep making videos and I'm going to keep speaking my truth because that's priceless in a way that anything, any numbers game ain't never going to add up to. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being on. It was so nice to talk to you and interesting, right? (laughs) No, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. You too.